0: Welcome to Hope Through Hard Stuff, a podcast from winning at home. Please welcome your host, speaker, and award-winning author, Steve Norman welcome back to hope through hard stuff I am honored to have as my conversation partner today Deborah brink Deborah is a counselor here at winning at home she's been doing it for 15 years I've had the opportunity to know she and her husband Craig for the last five years Kelly my wife and I uh, worshiped with them for a season and Deborah it is just it's a great joy to have you on the show today thanks for making time
1: thanks Steve I'm excited to be here
0: Deborah, what prompted you to get involved in clinical work? Like what was the draw or the pull for you to want to do the kind of counseling that you're doing now?
1: Well, I started quite a long time ago, actually, with getting my master's in social work. And I've always had a heart for people. I've always had a heart for wanting to journey alongside people. And I think that I was always very curious about people and their journey and then curious about what brings healing and wholeness. And I remember even as a younger person, really being interested in that. And I think, you know, sometimes the things, the hardships that we go through can draw us into our passions too in life. And so my, my mother struggled a bit with depression and anxiety, and that had a real impact on me and on my siblings and on my family, even at, out of that, I think really wanted to understand what, what health and wholeness again meant. And I wished that so much for her. And that did end up not being something that was, uh, unfortunately something she was ever to really attain in life. So I think that was part of the journey too, but God led me to it at a young, uh, young time in my life. And I have just, it's been a passion of mine.
0: Well, thanks so much for doing it. You and I were talking earlier, and you said that part of the challenge in a lot of people managing their emotional, spiritual, and mental health well is, isn't is so much being able to name or identify emotions, but it's being able to process, manage, and navigate those emotions. Talk Talk about that a little bit more, if you will.
1: Yeah. So when I work with clients, oftentimes what I talk about is that we have to do the heart work and that can be the hardest work we do, but the most important work we do in life. And so managing our emotions is a super important part of that, of that heart work. We want to be able to identify and understand what's going on in our hearts, and then how to best move forward with that healthy best version of ourselves. So emotions is is such a key part of who we are, right? You've heard the saying, maybe, uh, you know, we are thinking people who feel once in a while, but we're actually feeling people who think once in a while. So it's very important how we deal with, how we are able to identify emotion. And then even more important is how we respond to that emotion. So very critical in terms of being able to live a healthy life is what we do with emotion. And unfortunately, a lot of us haven't really been modeled how to manage emotion well. Um, We do a lot of different things with our emotions. We want to avoid often. Uh, We certainly don't like to deal with pain, right? So we numb, we avoid, we run away. And um, being able to identify that emotion and then being able to respond to it in a healthy way is so critical to healthy lifestyle.
0: Deborah, what do you think are some of the barriers to being able to identify and fully lean into those, those really tough emotions?
1: First of all, for a lot of us, we haven't been modeled it, how to do that effectively. Uh, secondly, you know, we would, again, much rather numb, avoid, and run away from our emotion. And so the barrier there is we, we we often can come at it from a place of fear of, oh, no, I I don't know how to manage that emotion, so I'd rather avoid it. We're a very addicted society. We're very, you know, we we much prefer to numb or escape versus go after our emotions. And once we realize, and once we develop skills of managing and navigating, we can find so much freedom in that. So oftentimes, Steve, what we can do is we can either push our emotion away, right? Or for instance, if we have an uncomfortable emotion, let's just say sadness or anger, uh, we'd like to either push it away, avoid it, Or we can hold it too close and it can become very overwhelming and and that can be super difficult again too to move forward with that. What we want to do is we want to have our emotions at a comfortable distance to be able to observe that emotion, to be able to identify it, and then to be able to respond to it in a healthy way.
0: That's, that's a great insight. And ne- I'd never heard it framed that way before. I I've definitely understood the, the one extreme the kind of stiff arming our emotions and keeping them as far away as possible, but had never heard about the, the flip side or the other, the other extreme, the other ditch, which is holding them too closely. What, what are some of the emotions that sometimes we hold too closely? And what are the, what are the fallouts from those?
1: Yeah, so certainly um, grief or sadness can can be something we hold very close and that can be very overwhelming. Um, Also anger, we can hold anger too closely and then it becomes consuming. What we want to think about is are our emotions driving the bus or are we driving the bus? And when we hold those, those difficult emotions too closely, they're the ones driving the bus in our life. So it's very important to be able to, again, recognize it and get that comfortable distance, be an observer of that emotion. I would say mostly some of those more difficult emotions like anger or, or sadness, and then being able to hold those where they need to be.
0: What are some of the kind of tactics or tools that, that you find yourself giving clients who are struggling to have that observation mode? Like I had heard one actor who was being interviewed who struggled with anxiety. He said that his therapist had kind of taught and counseled him to observe his emotions almost like cars driving by on a freeway. To be able to Mm -hmm. say like, oh, here, here comes anxiety or here comes stress. And as a way to almost say like, I anticipate that it was coming and now here it is. But, but he just had that device that allowed him to get some psychological distance from it so that he could observe it rather than being owned by it.
1: Yes, that's excellent. And one of the, I do use that too. Like, yeah, as cars passing by, we see it, we see it coming and then we can let it go. We can address it. Um, Allison Cook talks a lot in her really good, excellent book about boundaries for your soul. She talks about the importance of differentiation, which is really getting space from that emotion, which is kind of what I've been describing, right? There's interpsychic differentiation where we set boundaries with others. And then there's interpsychic differentiation where we set boundaries within ourselves. So that's a really important t- uh, tool for us to learn. Um, Practically speaking, kind of like you were saying with the cars going by, um, another practical thing that we can do is we can, first of all, focus on it, name it, right, and be able to feel it within our bodies. That's a super important thing. So when we have anger, sadness, anxiety, label the, the sensation in our bodies, Oftentimes, maybe our stomachs hurt or our head hurts or, you know, there's different ways our bodies carry that emotion. Very important to identify that first and then label the emotion, whatever it is. Breathe to create safety, to slow it down. I I teach all my clients four square breathing. It's a little bit of a technique to slow things down. And then finally, make a choice to either self-soothe it which would mean journal maybe take a walk maybe call a friend but slow it down enough where you're responding to it versus it controlling you
0: that's fascinating that's just it's so helpful and when you talk about making a choice it's it's great because it reminds me that like i'm i'm equipped and empowered to manage those emotions rather than just be beholden to them and i think that sometimes there's a popular sentiment that just says hey we should we should feel all of our feelings and we should feel them fully and we should feel them publicly and while that is well-intentioned, I hear you saying that if we just let the emotions run ragged, if we let that like fire of whether it's anger or grief or resentment, whatever else it is, if we let that burn uncontrolled, it, it can be really dangerous to ourselves and others.
1: Right. And I'm not saying that we are not to feel the emotion. We, we need to look at it. We need to consider it. We need to be observers of that, but then also manage it in a way that's life-giving and helpful to us.
0: Yeah. And I I love your your encouragement that when we name it and when we feel it, then we can start asking questions of it. And whether it's been, you know, Brene Brown, who says that it's important for us to be curious about our emotions or psychologist, Susan David, who says, Hey, sometimes when you're feeling an emotion really strongly ask this question, like, what's the purpose of this emotion? What's the function of this emotion? Mm-hmm. How, how have you seen that play out in your work? Like what, what happens when you see clients really get curious about that emotion? Where, where can that journey take them?
1: Well, it's life-changing, actually, because instead of, again, running away from it or numbing it, it's life-changing because if we choose curiosity or compassion, we start living much more aware lives. Do you get what yeah. I'm saying? And so it's really, really helpful. Um, one of the things I talk a, a lot of, to my clients about is is the whole concept of um, regulation, which I'm I'm sure you've heard that term being regulated or dysregulated. And we all have a wide range of emotions. Oftentimes we end up in survival mode, which is Mm -hmm. fight, flight, or freeze, right? And we do a lot of life up there. And instead of looking at that and doing life from that place, what if we did life from our window of tolerance, which is more of that middle ground, and that's that regulated place, and that's not a flat place. That's our ups and downs. We acknowledge our emotions, but we're more regulated. Um, Andy Colbert has done a lot of excellent work in that with Softer. her book, Softer. She teaches a lot on that. But when we are able to do life, regulated people are healthier people. They have healthier relationships. They are able to trust themselves more more confident we live life from a place of regulation when we do trauma work as therapists we are often helping our clients to become more regulated
0: it's, it's such a gift and I love your framework there Deborah because when you say that if if we live in that dysregulated zone of that fight flight or freeze, you can do that for a season, but you can't do that indefinitely. It has right. long-term effects on us psychologically, it physically, spiritually. If we don't wrestle down the tools to graduate beyond that space, right? That's so good. So talk talk a little. I'm intrigued. Come back to the kind of interpsychic boundaries that you talked about. How do we set boundaries? Like I I'm aware of setting boundaries externally in my relationships with other people. Ex- unpack that idea just a little bit more for me about what does it mean to set internal boundaries.
1: Yeah, so that fits a lot with what we're already talking about with emotion, right? And obviously, like you said, the setting boundaries outside with other people and in our relationships is such an important thing in terms of healthy relationships too, what's okay and what's not okay. Well, interpsychic differentiation, which is setting boundaries within ourselves, is is equally important because we can, again... Be um, in that survival mode where the emotions are the things driving our lives and driving us, and we—it's very difficult, Steve, to be able to find our true identity and to find ourselves when we're in sur- survival mode. So, right. being able to set those interpsychic uh, boundaries or interpsychic differentiation allows us to know ourselves better. So it's super important. So we pay attention, very important to pay attention, be aware. Oh, this is what's going on. I'm sad today. This is what's happening. And and then why? You know, what am I sad about? Why am I sad? What's going on? Being observers of that, right? And now, because again, we're looking at appropriate distance, right? We're not shoving that sadness away. We're not letting it overwhelm us. We're getting that comfortable distance, now we can differentiate, now we can set a boundary with that sadness and say, well, what do I need with that? And and it's not to say we can erase the sadness, obviously, but we can have a relationship to it, a relationship to our anxiety, a relationship to our anger that's healthier.
0: Deborah, you you mentioned when we're kind of having this internal conversation, being curious about those emotions and then also giving ourselves compassion. But for those of us who haven't had self-compassion modeled well, like I think a lot of us, you know, I'm I'm a gen X. And so I grew up kind of kid of baby boomers and and they grew up in an environment where their parents had survived the great depression and they'd been through world war II, And there was just kind of a fixed stoicism. You just didn't really complain about stuff. You didn't there. I don't think anybody was trying to be mean, but if, if you had a problem, sometimes the, the sentiment was like, boo-hoo, everybody's life is hard, get over it. And so you learn early on to, to kind of limit self-compassion. There was sometimes feelings of, of shame or guilt that was associated with with like, oh, I'm really sad. Well, guess what? Life is hard. Get over it. Or I'm really angry. Well, Bible says you should forgive people. Get over it. And how, how have you found either in your own journey or in your work, how have you found people being able to take healthy, mature steps towards self-compassion?
1: Yeah, well, again, this is another concept, Steve, that's so life-giving. I think a lot of us can identify with what you just said about being raised in homes where, No, 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 no. We just, uh, you know, pull it together, go forward. We don't acknowledge, you know, some of those harder emotions and we just get over it. A lot of us can identify with that. But what we're finding and what we're finding both in neuroscience and in the psychology field and just in culturally lately is just self compassion is the thing that allows us then to, because we're more aware and we're, we're practicing less judgment and more acceptance, we can love better. So the biggest thing that we're trying to do is we aren't trying to be just these self-absorbed people running around. We're trying to be able to love both ourselves and others more effectively. And when we heal, that's what happens is we love better. So I would say what I'm seeing with self-compassion for my clients, and then I would say both for myself personally, the more I practice that, the more I'm able to, again, I love God better, love myself better and love others better. Cause I'm coming more from a place of compassion versus a place of that inner critic.
0: Sure. And I think I I found regretfully in my own journey that if I don't, if I don't show compassion to myself, it becomes very challenging for me to show compassion to others. If it's, Absolutely. hey, if the bar is high for me and I fell short and I feel bad about it, then you should also feel bad about falling short of a bar that I have in my brain for you that I might not have even ever communicated. So that you're right, that that refusal or inability to show compassion really can compound itself in complex relational dynamics.
1: Absolutely. Yep. It's not saying we don't own our stuff. We need to own our stuff. But if we own and even our story, we need to own our story, own our story with compassion that allows us to move forward. So, self-compassion is a big deal and you know with Brené Brown and her research too, she found that that the way forward really in terms of especially dealing with such difficult emotions such as shame is really self-compassion.
0: That's so good. Deborah, you mentioned trauma, and it seems like, in many ways, if we're trauma is becoming a word that is popping up more and more in everyday conversations. For people who aren't maybe versed in trauma language, how, how do we know when somebody's been through a legitimate trauma, or maybe they're just being a little bit exaggerative with their speech? it sounds horrible, even as it comes out of my mouth, but this, I've had, I was having a conversation with a friend. He's like, Oh, well, when you had this and that experience at this and that ministry, you experienced a spiritual trauma. And I found myself like kind of cringe when I heard that. Cause I'm not discounting that that can happen, but just because you experienced something that was difficult or disappointing, doesn't necessarily make it traumatic. Can you talk about the nuances of, of what trauma is and why it's important to maybe not misname it?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yes, it is a word that is often used now. And I do believe it's important not to misname it. I mean, there's an actual DSM-5 diagnosis of PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder. And that's when we look at trauma and we look at something that has occurred that is really causing, it's interfering with your ability to live life well. Um, that, that kind of trauma or traumatic experience is, it, it impacts people on a, in a lot of different ways. And then there's what is called small T trauma, which can be uh, something that occurs over time. For instance, maybe a child in an abusive uh, environment, but that environment isn't physically abusive. It may be some emotional abuse or emotional neglect, which can also be you know, traumatic too, there's different levels of trauma, right? And I do think we have to be careful about how we define it and how we look at it. The important thing is is how do we respond to those kind of circumstances in our life? And as trauma-informed therapists, we're trying to figure out how, what was the impact of that trauma on the individual and on ourselves, right? But I, I would agree with you, Steve, you want to be careful about what you're labeling as trauma and what you're not, you know, what you're putting into that category.
0: So as a therapist, how does the work between people who are processing a big T trauma differ from the work with somebody who's processing like a small T trauma?
1: You look at how it is impacting the client. You have to look at what kind of things are how is it interfering with their lives? How is it impacting how they're going forward? We don't even sometimes have to necessarily focus in on, well, that shouldn't have been a big trauma for this person. You don't have to look at that as much as you have to look at what how is it impacting? How is it getting in the way? And then how do we heal from it?
0: Okay. And Deborah for some people who maybe, maybe they don't look at their past experience as particularly traumatic, but it is affecting their ability to do work. I, I, again, I know that some of us say, well, life is hard. I don't think that my life was any more difficult than somebody else's. So I'm going to put my big boy or big girl pants on and just kind of keep marching through life. How do we know, uh, if something really is inhibiting our ability to live life well, or mm-hmm. if we just had a, had a rough season and, and need to pull out of the dive.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we notice how it's in terms of, is it, is it interfering with our ability to do our work? Well, okay. is it interfering with our ability to love our family or love our people? Well, um, is it on our minds a lot? Is it interfering? It, do we notice we get stuck sometimes in it? Do we notice that, you know, we don't feel like we live very free. We don't have a lot of joy. Those are the things we we want to look for. How again is it interfering with okay. those those everyday life situations that we're trying to navigate through?
0: Deborah, you talked about box breathing for a little bit uh, or four count breathing. For people who aren't exp- are, have never heard of it before, what how does it work?
1: Well, one of the things that's really important again is um, especially I work a lot with people who are struggling with so oftentimes anxiety stress, those kinds of things. So one of the things that's super important is our ability to calm our bodies. Mm. So one technique I teach is something called four square breathing. And if you picture a square and you picture a four on each side of the square, you're going to want to breathe in through your nose and count slowly to four. And it's more abdominal breathing versus shoulder breathing. So you count slowly to four and you breathe in and then you hold that For four seconds, and then you breathe out through your mouth, counting slowly to four, and then you let it set for four seconds. That's called four square breathing. And it's taught to Navy SEALs so that they can focus in highly stressful situations. It's very grounding centering.
0: And about how many repetitions, like how many times do you, do people usually need to work around the box before they're starting (laughs) to feel anchored?
1: Yeah, you should do it at least four times, and you shouldn't okay. don't count too fast
0: because okay. that
1: doesn't help you. So count slowly, hold it for four, and then out through your mouth and let it set for four.
0: I think one of the things that was challenging for me when I when that tool was first introduced to me is like that that holding between ex, inhaling and exhaling, right? Because we're conditioned to thinking that well, breathe, you breathe in and you breathe out, and that that hold like those those four seconds after you take air in and after you release air are tricky because you don't, yeah. you would never do that consciously. Right. And yeah. so doing that gives you a, a release sense, a, a centered sense of control to be able to say Absolutely. like, Oh, I'm, I'm here. I'm present. Yep. I, I can choose. I have more agency than maybe I thought that I did 30 seconds ago before I started this.
1: Yeah. And again, you know, especially with anxiety or some of those more uncomfortable kinds of emotions or feelings We feel very out of control, right? And it does hit our bodies first, so that's why we want to do that calming, centering, grounding. Getting in touch with our breathing allows us to be more on top of the the anxiety itself, too.
0: Deborah, that's a great tool. Are there are there any other tools that you think listeners who are really kind of struggling to to power through emotions and get appropriate distance from them should should be adding to their to their toolkit?
1: Yep. I would say definitely the, the grounding, centering, anything you can do to calm your body is super important to notice how your body's being impacted by some of the anxiety or the difficult emotions. And then really being able to kind of work on correcting your thinking. Because oftentimes we go to worst case scenario where we hold those emotions too closely to us. So being able to Correct our thinking or to ask the question, for instance, if we're working on our inner critic, being able to name it, right, calm our bodies, name it, uh, befriend it, understand it with compassion, um, invite God into the process, super important, and then unburden, you know, some of the weight of maybe some of the messages we're taking in with that inner critic. And then integrating a newer and truer, more beautiful message. So important.
0: So good. Deborah, as a person of faith, as somebody who's you know kind of committed to using the truth of scripture and the person of Christ to inform your own journey and your work with clients, how do we discern kind of that inner prompting of the Holy Spirit and just kind of the, the inner critic? Like, because sometimes... If we're not particularly healthy, if we are feeling overwhelmed, it can, those lines can get blurred. And the voice that we hear in our brain, we think that that might, could very well be the voice of God when, when in fact it, it really isn't. How, how do you help people kind of parse out what's, what's what, when they're trying to navigate that internal monologue? Mm-hmm.
1: So a lot of what I do when I'm working with clients, first of all, is, um, you know, we, we, I talked to them about, you know, we're on this journey and we're, tr- we're going to figure out what are all the pieces, right, that are going on in your life and what are all the things, what are all some, what are some of the messages, right? So often, Steve, we have been wounded in the past and then, then we carry on the lies from the wound, right? Yeah. So we're not only just trying to figure out what the wound is, we're trying to find out what are the lies from the wound. And so often those lies are the things that make up our inner critic, you know, is you're not enough or you're this or you're that. And it just really gets in our way again of understanding our true identity. And just as a faith-based person, the more we understand the goodness of God and who he created us to be, and the more we understand our identity and our worth as his beloved children, Mm -hmm. We also then are able to stand against the lies and stand against that inner critic. So there's a real process in that, but it's such a beautiful one when we can really figure out what the lies are. And then we can actually start and retrain our minds, um, put a new message in there. That's a, truer, great, a truer message.
0: A truer message. Deborah, any last thoughts or words of encouragement to people who might be tuning in today who just, they, they feel overwhelmed and they, they feel again, either that they're self-medicating in whatever, whatever their drug of choice is, because they don't want to feel their emotions or their experience with their emotions is so bonded to their identity that they, they don't have a healthy space with it. Any, any final words of, of challenge or hope for them?
1: So I would say that there is hope there is healing Their story is meant to be a story that is full of life and goodness and light, and I would encourage them not to give up. I would encourage them to go after that true identity. I would encourage them to continue to do the work. A lot of us maybe don't necessarily want to, but I would encourage them to keep doing the work because... Uh, God is the God of healing. He's a God of goodness. He's a God of light and of truth. And when we truly accept that and we truly understand our identity and our worth in him, and we do life from a place of compassion, um, it's very free. It's very life-giving.
0: That's great, Deborah. Thank you so much for sharing your insight and your time with us today. I know I've been encouraged and feel like I've got some more tools to work with than I did when we started. And we look forward to talking to you again sometime soon.
1: All right. Thanks, Steve.
0: Thanks for listening to Hope Through the Hard Stuff. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe to it, rate and review it, and then share it with others. Winning at Home offers hope through counseling and coaching, motivational speaking, community events, and other media resources. If you believe in what we do and want to support us in our mission,
1: consider making a donation at winningathome.com.